Hi, my name is Andy Chamberlain. I'm a writer and creative writing tutor, and you are listening to the Creative Writers Toolbelt, the podcast that gives you practical, accessible advice that you can apply straight away to your own writing. And welcome to episode 104 of the Creative Writers Toolbelt. This episode features an interview with the writer and creative entrepreneur, Jeff Goines. And I'm delighted that Jeff accepted my offer to be a guest on the podcast. We had a great conversation, which we'll come to in a moment. Now, my own news is that the Creative Writers Toolbelt handbook is now published. Some of you will know about this book. It takes all of the very best advice and insight from my own research, as well as dozens of professional writers and editors from the over 100 episodes of the podcast that have been broadcast over the last three and a half years or so. All of that material is condensed down into one book. And I've written this handbook in the same spirit as I try and apply to the podcast. I want to give you practical accessible advice on the craft of writing that you can apply straight away to your own work. And I asked myself these questions with both the podcast and the book. What's helpful to me as a writer? And can I actually use this advice in my writing? If it passes those tests, it gets into the podcast and into the handbook. Now you can get a copy of the handbook in ebook format on Kindle or paperback via Amazon or from my website, which is andrewjchamberlain.com. Now, I think the Creative Writer's Handbook is everything that you need to be a better writer and produce great work. I'm also gearing up for a Writer's Jumpstart, which is a conference in London on Saturday, November the 11th, that I'm hosting with the writer and speaker, Wendy H. Jones. And this conference is for every writer who needs some energy and some ideas and some resources, both for the craft of writing and for their marketing efforts in terms of marketing themselves as an author and marketing their work. And on that day, we're gonna be covering the craft of writing. So we're gonna be looking at storytelling, characterization, setting and well building and genre as well as running a section on non-fiction and we're also going to be looking at how writers can market themselves and their work now that's a vast array of topics and we'll be giving you a range of resources that you've got not only for the day itself but that you can take away and apply to the situation that you're in in terms of improving in the craft and developing your own marketing plans and strategies now the price of the conference is just 75 pounds including lunch and refreshments for the day but as creative writers talk about listeners you guys get an even better deal you're entitled to a 10% discount on that price and all you need to do is to enter the code E2WTEN that's letter E number two and then the letters WTEN on the booking form when you make your booking you'll get a 10% discount on that price now this is going to be a busy intense but incredibly rewarding day that will literally jumpstart both your writing and the way in which you present yourself and your work as a writer. Now you can find out more about the conference at my website, which is andrewjchamberlain.com and also at our conference website, which is equippedtowrite.co.uk. That's E-Q-U-I-P-P-E-D-T-O-W-R-I-T-E.co.uk. And that's the Writers Jumpstart Conference, Saturday the 11th of November 2017 at the Union Jack Club in Sandal Street in London. And I'm really looking forward to seeing some of you guys there. So back to this episode, and my guest today will be known to many of you. He's the writer and speaker, Jeff Goines. Jeff is the author of a number of books, including the national bestseller, The Art of Work, and the recently published Real Artists, 
Don't Starve. He's a full-time blogger, speaker and entrepreneur. Originally from Chicago, he graduated from Illinois College and spent the next year on the road with a band. After that, he moved to Nashville to chase a girl and spent the next seven years working at a non-profit organization. He now writes and speaks for a living and runs an online business helping writers and creative entrepreneurs chase their dreams. Jeff's award-winning blog, goinswriter.com, that's G-O-I-N-S, writer.com, has been visited by over 4 million people from around the world. His work has been featured in the Washington Post, USA Today, Entrepreneur, Forbes, and Psychology Today. He and his wife, Ashley, live just outside Nashville, Tennessee, with their son and a dog. So, Jeff, welcome to the Creative Writers Tool Belt. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Great to be here. So I want to start uh, with a question related to the book that you recently published, which is Real Artists Don't Starve. Now, you talk in that book about the importance of all of us identifying what we really want to do and be. I wondered if you had some sort of tips and suggestions about how we can do that. How can we how can we each take practical steps to to working out what it is that's really in our hearts that we want to do? Yeah. So real quick, I don't think we believe it till we become it. And my process for that is believe, behave, become. So our beliefs obviously shape our behavior. Activity follows identity. Before you can go do something, you have to become someone. I have a friend who's a health coach, and she says if you if you walk through life saying I'm a fat loser, you're not going to lose weight. It is going to it, it is going to create stress, which will allow you to keep the weight on. You will feel really bad about yourself, and you will eat your feelings. I mean, it's it's it would be much better. And she says that she goes to think like a skinny person, you know. <laughs> and and somebody once said thoughts are things, right? And so what we think about ourselves and our lives and the stories that we're telling with our lives matters. And so our beliefs shape our behavior and then our behavior dictates what we become. So I think the best place to start is to begin imagining a new possibility for yourself. And so in the book, I say we're not born artists. We become artists. Yeah. We have to choose it. It is a daily decision. And one of the things that I noticed when I was interviewing uh, every day thriving creatives, contemporary artists, creative entrepreneurs, writers, and so on, is that there was a moment, there was a point at which they decided to take this seriously. Turning pro is what Stephen Pressfield calls it. So I think the first step of a writer is to decide, I am a writer. I had a conversation with a friend early on in my career where he asked me what my dream was. I hemmed and hawed and said, I don't know. And he said, well, really? Because I would have thought your dream was to be a writer. And I said, okay, fine. I'd like to be a writer someday. And he said, Jeff, you don't have to want to be a writer. You are a writer. You just need to write. And that was a really important conversation for me. And the next day I started writing because I was like, well, okay, I'm a writer. What do writers do? They write every day, I assume. They get up at 5 a.m. and they write, 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 write. And, and so the belief cued a behavior that eventually – uh, brought about, um, you know, an identity for me. I became a writer. People started acknowledging me as a writer. Yeah. But that acknowledgement never would have happened if I didn't start thinking like a writer and start acting like one. And so I think first you need to start thinking like a writer, like an artist, like an entrepreneur, whatever this thing is that you want to be, act as if it's already true. So think like it, then do it. And very practically, I think you should pick one small habit that you can practice on a daily basis, even if it's just for 10 minutes, that if you do it day after day after day, over and over and over again, 365 days a year, will add up to something 
uh, incredible. It will add up to uh, something bigger than you could have imagined. great example of this is John Grisham. Didn't even know if he wanted to be a writer. Was curious about whether or not he had what it took to write. And so as a lawyer and as a dad, i.e. a very busy person, he, he got up a little bit early every day and wrote one page, just one page to his first novel. It took him two years to finish it. And he eventually sold it to a small publisher, didn't make a lot of money off of it, but enjoyed the process so much that he did it again. And he started writing another book. Again, a page a day, uh, spent, you know, a year or two finishing it, sold that book to a publisher. Uh, that book was called The Firm and it became a mega bestseller. And he became an overnight success four years in the making. <laughs> all he did to get to that point was, first of all, he was patient enough to do it for four years. Second of all, he had to practice a daily discipline over and over and over again, one page a day. And so I think the way that we get to our dreams is not by leaping and hoping the net will appear. It is by deciding to be a writer and then doing the work that's required of that title to keep earning it every single day. To pick up on something that you said there, it sounds as if there is a process, which is if I'm a writer, I have to believe I'm a writer. And as I behave as a writer and, and apply those disciplines, it's then that other people believe that I'm a writer. So I have to believe it myself first and then yeah. other people yeah. will start to take that on. Eventually. Nobody will take you seriously until you do. Okay. I want to um, change tack a little bit, but still keep on a subject that you talked about in, in your book. I want to talk about things which seem original and groundbreaking. And one of the examples that you give in your book is Jim and Jane Henson and uh, the, the original Sam and Friends program and then the Muppets after that. It seems to be that you were saying in that book that some that people are artists are perceived as being original or groundbreaking not so much by finding something brand new but by expressing a truth or something that's authentic that no one has quite been able to express before Did, would you agree with that and what, what's your take on that yeah i think original work is a myth and we all i think when we say we want to do original work what we're saying is we want to do something as good as our heroes and the masters who have come before us, the greats, the Jim Hensons and Walt Disney's and Twyla Tharps and, uh, you know, the Led Zeppelins and, and, and Picasso's and so on. And, and, and we, we say we want to do original work because nobody wants to be a copycat, but it's an intellectually dishonest thing to say when all of our greats and all of the masters became great by copying the greats who came before them. So when Jim Henson receives this uh, award for being, um, you know, uh, one of the most influential puppeteers in history, he admits sheepishly that a guy named Burr Tilstrom did more for putting puppets on television than Jim Henson ever did. Right. This is this is the creator of the Muppets and Sesame Street and the Dark Crystal and you know and all these great uh, works of enduring art. And yet what he did was shamelessly steal from people like Bertilstrom, from uh, the European uh, puppet shows that he saw as a college student when he was basically ready to quit being a puppeteer and go be a fine artist. He wanted to be a painter because he didn't want to be making art just for kids. Uh, he wanted to do something serious and he went to um, Europe for like uh, you know, like a little six-week Get away, you know, a little mini 
gap period to try to figure out what he's going to do with his life at a time when he and his partner, Jane, who eventually become his wife, they were doing all of these ad spots with their puppets. And he just – it didn't feel like an artist doing it. So he goes to Europe and what he sees are puppet shows on the streets where you've got adults and kids both being equally entertained by the same show. And he realizes, oh, I I can do that too. Um, you know, we've heard the saying, uh, good artists copy, great artists steal. And so first of all, you need to not be original, but you also don't want to be a copycat in the sense that you're going to do everything that Jim Henson did or you're, you know, you're a, a movie maker and you're going to do everything that Quentin Tarantino did. Cause that's silly. Cause first of all, Quentin Tarantino is, is intentionally stealing from all of his favorite movie makers or you're going to write exactly the way Charles Dickens did. Uh, but what you want to do is you want to steal from multiple influences. You want to borrow their ideas and their voices and bring them together in a way that's never been brought together before. Uh, his, uh, the historian Will Durant says nothing is new except arrangement. And I think the job of an artist, and certainly I would include writers in that category, the job of an artist is to study the greats who have come before them. Then it is to curate those voices uh, in some new remix, a rearrangement uh, that has never been done before exactly that way, and then to share it with the world. And if you do that, the crazy thing is people will say, Wow, you're so original. And of course, you know the truth, but they don't have to know that. <laughs> so just a kind of related question to all that. Um, if I am an artist or a writer and I'm curating all this stuff, is the, is the secret of it that I've seen something in this myself and thought, that is what I want to do. That is what I want to say. That is what I want to believe in. That's what I'm going to say and do. And I'm going to pull in these other things that are going to help me. And then I can take that to the world. Is that? Yeah. I mean, I, I think. Early on, you don't know what you want to do typically and I think a lot of writers wait to find their voices before they start doing serious work when in reality, the best way to find your voice is you just just start doing the work. So we find our voices by writing. We don't wait to find our voices before we write. I, I think it just – it begins with mimicry. It begins with um, – uh, stealing. And I mean that in a very ethical way. Like you should be reading a lot, studying, uh, borrowing ideas and ways to phrase things. And then uh, as a writer, you know, we should be giving credit where credit's due and notes and footnotes and, and citing our sources. Uh, but you know, understanding that like this is what great writers do, you know, so when Hemingway is hanging out with Gertrude Stein and Picasso and James Joyce in Paris in the 1920s where all these people lived. He's borrowing from – because he's the kid. On the, he's the new kid on the block and he's borrowing all these different techniques. You know, And one of the, one of the uh, art forms that Gertrude Stein was playing with at the time was repeating the same word over and over again but with different meaning. There's a saying that, that lots of people throw around that's attributed to her – as, as we're saying it, she, she says, there's no there there, right? People talk about that. Like, what does that mean? You know, it's about the process, not necessarily the finish line, but there's no there there. That's, <laughs> that's three there's in one sentence. Hemingway borrowed this technique, you know, and he didn't say as Gertrude Stein said, he borrowed this 
but he did it in his own way where – I mean her work was very avant-garde and, and his was much more uh, commercially viable. Um, you know, He had these – Interesting war stories. He, he was, he was, he was borrowing from the avant-garde modernist movement, but also borrowing from kind of the romantic writers that came before him, you know, uh, the Melvilles and, and Twains and, and, and bridging the gap between these two different eras of literature. I mean, this is incredible, right? About Hemingway, because it's very apparent when you study his influences that he is just borrowing from everybody around him. And, and yet, when you look at 20th century literature, his quote unquote style is one of the most influential. You know, the terse, tight prose, how many novelists and journalists, you know, in, in the latter half of the 20th century said Hemingway was an influence on them. And so, you know, I just think this is the way great work gets made. And kind of related to that, um, you, you, I know that you've talked about the importance of finding a mentor. And um, I just wondered if you had kind of bits of advice or insight for, for people, uh, particularly writers, because it's, it's quite hard to find a good mentor or somebody that, that, that can intentionally and purposefully help and take you on in, in your art. Mm. Have you got any tips about how to do that, how to find a good mentor? Yes. So the best way to find a mentor is to not ask somebody to be your mentor. Because that's a lot of pressure, right? Um, and I've done this before and it doesn't work, right? Because I don't know that we're – that's like asking somebody to be your dad, right? Um, I don't I don't know. I don't know if I want to adopt you just yet. Like let's let's date before we, you know, we do this. A um, little bit of mixed metaphors there. Why would I date my dad? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> so um, – I think the best way to do this is to begin with what I call a case study strategy. And it's, I mean, you're a writer, right? So all you need to do is pick 10 influencers, 10 people that have influenced your work that are alive, uh, that you would love to be in relationship with. And you don't ask them to be, uh, your, your mentor. You don't ask them to give you advice. You don't even ask to pick their brain. All you want to do is thank them for their work to begin to start with and I, I got an email like this just the other day and, and there's a right way to do this and a wrong way to do this the wrong way to do is to say hey thanks for your work i'm a big fan love all that you do hey by the way could you tweet out this article that i just wrote or could you read my fifty thousand word manuscript and tell me if it's any good it's too too big of an ask you're basically yeah you know yes. proposing marriage you're pushing the adoption papers across the table on the first me meeting <clears throat> so it's not going to work the case study strategy is different. It's dear so-and-so, thanks for X. It helped me do Y. Now what about Z, X, Y, Z? So example, uh, dear Andrew, thanks for uh, episode 25 of your podcast. Uh, it helped me uh, become a better writer. I actually finished my book because of your interview with so-and-so. Like, like very substantial – definitive ways in which it helped you. And so when somebody says, I read your book and it changed my life, I'm like, no, it didn't. Whatever. How? You know, <laughs> it's a book. Come on. You know, and I want something sub, sub, sub substantive because that's a throwaway thing to say, yeah, you know? Yeah. But if I go, you know, Andrew, love that blog post that you wrote. Um, it, it made me get up every day, half an hour earlier and write. And, and now I've produced 10,000 words of a manuscript that I'm working on. 
Like, I don't know about you, but like, that's exciting to get. That's exciting to hear. You're, you're absolutely right. Because I, <clears throat> occasionally people do write to me about the podcast. Yeah. And, and they'll say, uh, thank you so much for the podcast. And thank you particularly for episode X or whatever, when you talked about a particular thing. Yep. And, and I love it. I absolutely love it because it just gives me the encouragement that I need that I, that, that I'm actually being, being able to do the thing that I want to do. That it's actually got some traction with people. So no, you're you're completely right. And everybody I know, everybody it doesn't matter how famous or successful or influential you are, they want to hear this. And and we are all a little bit afraid that what we're doing doesn't matter. Yeah. I have friends that are super famous, and and they're worried that they're just. I mean, they're just worried that they're famous for being famous, right? <laughs> and that. Yeah. 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 I'm sure. Seriously. It's true. You know, just because you're being, just because you're famous and people know who you are doesn't mean you're making an impact and you're changing lives. Um, I remember being on a plane one time sitting behind Kim Kardashian. It was the only time I've flown first class and I was accidentally upgraded and I was literally sitting behind her flying to Miami. I've never watched Keeping Up with the Kardashians. Obviously, I know who she is, but I don't yeah, like sure. I'm not a fan. <clears throat> don't really follow her work. And yet being this close to a famous person, one, made me very nervous because I thought maybe I should say something. Two, gave me the inexplicable desire to get a selfie with her, which like I like I don't even do selfies of myself. Um, but I was like, I need to capture this and document yes. this so that people can see it. I'm like, yes. what am I doing? You know, it's so weird. So we do have this weird obsession with fame. So, I mean, everybody's kind of w- wondering – do you like me because you heard my name somewhere and you think that I'm going to give you something, a status, whatever, a story? Uh, or do you actually appreciate the work that I've done? So dear so-and-so, thanks for X, a very specific thing that you've done. It helped me do Y, uh, a very specific thing that it helps you do. And, and then depending on the context of the email, you can ask a question. Now, what about Z? So thanks for episode 25. It helped me do such and such. Um, I'm writing every day now. Uh, you know, I've got 10,000 words of manuscript. I'm guessing that you are much more open to helping this person, Andrew, than somebody emailing you and asking you a question that you have spent, uh, years, you know, trying to answer. You know, like when somebody goes, Hey, can you help me with such and such, like how to write a book? I'm like, if you Google how to write a book, my blog post is the number one blog post on it. Yeah. So, absolutely. like this is, this feels like you're not trying very hard. <laughs> I think what it is, is if somebody writes to me and they ask me questions which I can answer without asking them a question because they've thought it through and they're precise, <laughs> I'm much more mm-hmm. open to that. If I have to go back yeah. and say, you've just said you want to help with your book. What's it about? Right. What genre is it in? How far have you got with it? Tell me, you know, da, da, da. And it's not that I don't want to help that person. It's just I, 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 I want them to do the homework their homework before they come to me. And in reality, you don't really know how to help them because they're not being very clear on what they want or need. And not to start with a day. Yeah, and it's not your job to give them advice that may or may not be helpful to them. That's a waste of your time and maybe – No, I don't want to do that. Yeah. I want to get precise before I want to, I want to give them something that will help them so neither of us are wasting our time and we can get on with it. Um, so I want to come to another issue which, again, I know you've raised a few times. It's certainly in the book and, and at other points in discussion. Some of what you talk about seems to be balancing a tension between two different extremes. So, for example, you talk about this decision, the decision about when to hold on to creative property and when to sell it or when to let it go. Or 
the decision to work on a particular skill and improve it versus the decision to try and develop a new skill. So some of what you talk about seems to be getting that creative tension right between two different things. So I wondered if you could give us a little bit of um, insight and tips around how you would go about making those sorts of decisions yourself. What, what's the thought process that, that should go into that? Terrible at contradicting myself. And, and so <laughs> we just give it this you know, literary term, creative tension. Um, <laughs> I completely agree with you. I think a lot of decisions in life are, are balanced with some pros and cons. And it's making those making that decision, maybe to do something that you wouldn't have done six months ago, but now the time is right, that kind of stuff. Yeah, well, you know, there's that saying, all truth is paradox. And I think there's some truth to that. And, and I find, like, um, I think you know that you're maturing as a writer when you begin to contradict yourself. I used to think this, now I think this. Because you begin to realize that life is nuanced and it's not just a one-size-fits-all. Um, so, yeah, on one hand... I don't want people to starve as artists and writers. On the other hand, I don't think you should be making art to make money. I think you should be making money so that you can make more art. Um, and, and, you know, like I'm on this journey too. So I find myself chasing something only to realize that's not what I really want. I don't want the money. I just want the freedom to be creative. And the money is the means to that, but it's not what I'm really working for. It, you know, similarly with building a portfolio, I I don't want to be distracted, but I also don't want to get bored with just doing the same thing. And it turns out that I'm interested in many things. So I don't want to be a jack of all trades, but I want to become a, a master of some, not one. And um, yeah, and, and the same thing with selling your work. On one hand, um, it seems very uh, common. This was a big commonality. Starving artists tend to sell off their intellectual property too soon. The first publisher, the first, um, you know, um, buyer, uh, the first company that wants to acquire your smaller company. And those who built, um, impressive creative projects and even empires, uh, typically held out for as long as possible, uh, until the bid was, well, until the money was enough that they could support themselves for a long time, uh, if not the rest of their lives. And also that the buyer was going to help them help make the work better. Um, and I've been on both sides of this. So my first book, I sold too soon and it's fine. I learned from that, but, um, you know, I've talked to musicians who it took them 25 years to learn this lesson that the record label was not their buddy necessarily. And that selling all of their publishing rights, which is where songwriters can make a lot of money off, you know, for an advance and having a, you know, a percentage of a royalty given to them was not the uh, best business deal they could have done for their art. And, um, you know, so there's just these, you know, these things that, that you, you learn along the way. And I think at the core of all this, Andrew, is the basic idea that I'm a writer and my goal here is to keep writing. And so how do I keep writing? Well, you know, how, how did J.K. Rowling do this? She said she turned down Disney. She turned down Disney when they offered to buy the film rights to Harry Potter early on. But, you know, keep in mind, these movies started coming out before the books were done. Um, you know, she'd written, you know, one or two books and, and things had started to take off. Um, and she said, I will only sell this if I get like a percentage 
of the movie sales, which is unheard of. Typically, that doesn't happen with film options. And and she held out and Universal Studios says, we'll do that deal. And that decision made her a billionaire. And so she can keep writing. <laughs> and that's obviously a dramatic example. But I think everything that we do from building a portfolio to holding off as long as possible before you sell your work, um, the goal here is to make the work better and to keep doing the work. So when I sold my first book for $5,000 to a publisher, at the time, that was a lot of money and that was the right decision for me to keep doing my work. Uh, and, you know, but I didn't do that again, right? And, and so over time, you learn these things. And so it's not like, I think we're worried that if I make one wrong financial or business decision with my art, like I'm going to be doomed. And, and it's not that. But you also don't want to keep learning the same lesson over and over again. The goal of an artist, I think, is to do two things. One, like your job is to make work that matters. And in order to do that, you have to have as much control over that work as possible. If you sell your book, if you sell, uh, you know, the, your movie, if you sell your, um, the, the intellectual property to your, you know, um, uh, artwork. You don't own that anymore and you have no control over it or, or very little control. When you sell your book to a publisher, uh, you get royalties from that maybe. Um, but you have basically sold your intellectual property to them. You've given them the rights to edit it, uh, publish it, distribute it. And, and, and there's kind of a shared ownership there. So you've given up some control over your work. You want to do that for a large sum of money. Uh, and you want to do that because hopefully they can help make the work better. And so your job is to do interesting work. And so ownership is required for you to do that. And your second job is to set yourself up so that you can keep doing the work. That means I need to pay my bills. That means I, I need to charge for my work. Uh, and that need, that means I, I need to make both short term and long term decisions that keep me in this game for as long as I want to do it. And so I'm very interested in creating a body of work, not just having a one hit wonder. And so sometimes I'll sell my work for less than I could necessarily make if I, um, uh, uh, you know, kept, you know, kept all of the IP forever. And, and gradually would make more money over time, but by selling that off for you know such and such sum, it's going to allow me to do something else in the short term that I'm you know more interested in. So just understanding kind of the give and take, uh, you know, is is what this is about. But again, at the end of the day, I think it's about our ability to keep doing the work, and and that's your job is to set yourself up so that you can live to fight another day. Yeah. Yes. Um, there's a couple of questions I want to ask you now that are more related to how it is to be an artist emotionally and in terms of mindset. So the first of those is I've noticed that it's, it is very easy for artists, even great artists and famous people. And perhaps we've touched on this to be a little bit insecure sometimes to feel that their work is not good enough and they start to compare themselves. And th this can happen to anybody. I think they compare themselves to others. Um, and, and that can be quite a, quite a kind of toxic route to take. So how, how do we as artists in the broadest sense combat that tendency? How do we stop ourselves from unhelpfully comparing ourselves to others um, and, and thereby getting discouraged it, it sort of inappropriately? Man, I am an expert at comparing myself to others. <laughs> <laughs> 
it's I mean, I think different personalities are more given to this than others, but it is um my greatest malady. Um yeah, I mean, I think the reality is it doesn't change anything. My awareness of how well somebody else is doing um it does nothing for me. It doesn't make my job easier. It doesn't make my job harder. It doesn't excuse me from my commitment to my work. And it's it's a different game. I really do think that's true. A friend of mine told me a story about him uh, running this marathon. It was like his first marathon. And um, there was this guy who was in like really good shape. And he was – my friend was keeping up with him. And you know they were at like mile 15, 16, 17 and, and starting to hit that wall. And my friend just, you know, very competitive driven guy and he's like, I've got to keep up with this guy. And it's just, he was dying and the guy next to him was not dying. And so the more athletic guy said to my friend, he, he just came over and he goes, run your own race. And my friend dropped back and went to a more comfortable pace for him so that he could finish. And, and so. You know, I look at you and you look at me and we kind of assume that we're on the track together at the same place and we started at the same time and we're trying to beat each other when in reality you may have started before or after me. Your finish line may be several years ahead of mine or behind mine. None of us are guaranteed you know, uh, the same length of track. I mean, all of our lives are very different. Some successful creatives had, uh, you know, like Michelangelo, um, you know, had basically 80, what, like, like 60, 70 years of creative work, eight, almost 80 years of creative work that they did. Long career. Other people like Van Gogh had a decade, less than that, right? Is one better than the other? You know, is one, is one artist legacy more significant than the other? No, it's just different. And so understanding that everybody really is running their own race, I think is super important. And also realizing no matter what you do or what you accomplish, that does not excuse me from doing my work. Mother Teresa, when she was on her deathbed, said, I have done what is mine to do. Now you do what is yours to do. Should I be comparing myself to Mother Teresa, you know, and all the people that she helped and the lives that she touched? Obviously, that's an inspiration. But for me to say I've got to do that is, 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 is not honoring her legacy and it's certainly not honoring the calling on my life to do something different. And so I should be inspired by, you know, what you're doing with, with your vocation. Yeah. But I shouldn't be jealous of it because that's what that's yours and that's yours to do. I should do what is mine to do. Yeah. Yes. So I did. I just want to pick up on something that that you said there. Um, you you use the phrase the calling on your life. Now we 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 can all appreciate there are kind of overtones of um destiny and faith and belief in that that kind of language. And I guess some people some people will feel comfortable with thinking of themselves as called to being writers. For other people, that 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 does that kind of language doesn't quite work so well. However, how much of a big deal do you think that is? How much of an how much of at the heart of this is is it a sense that we each of us has of having our own calling, of having our own 
race to run of of having the the, the kind of course marked out which is our course to get through uh it's very important to me i would never impose my priorities or uh world view on on somebody else um but um it is i mean it's something that i um don't take lightly and uh you know it's it's worth noting that the word vocation which more people are comfortable with is um it comes from the latin word vocari which means to call and, and so i just think okay so it, it's important in this sense it's important in this sense that i think everybody needs a vocation um but everybody has an occupation <clears throat> and here's the difference a vocation is something that you are called to, that you were pulled towards. That is more than just a good idea or a good career move. It is, it is, uh, as, as one person, uh, once said, it is the place where your deepest joy meets the world's deepest need. So if you want to call that purpose, if you want to call that a job, uh, if you want to call that a calling, whatever, I would argue that the most meaningful work always lies in that intersection. How am I most fulfilled? And energized and excited. And then how is that, like, how am I impacting people with that work? It's not always going to be a perfect intersection, but I think in the moment, like the moments when we are experiencing flow, as Mihai Csikszentmihalyi would call it, where we are fully alive, we're in that intersection. And an occupation, on the other hand, is something that you do to occupy your time. And I would argue, whether you believe in things like calling and destiny or God or the power of the universe or not, nobody wants to be just occupying a space in time and history. You want to be doing something that matters. You want to put a dent in the universe, as Steve Jobs said, and it's going to take more than just like a really good idea. And so whether the calling is an internal motivation. It is a drive. It is a desire to do something that matters or feels like an external force pulling you towards it. I do think we need to be seeking out opportunities that look more like vocation and less like an occupation. Okay. So this, this kind of leads me into the second question that I wanted to ask you, which is a little bit around, I suppose, calling and mindset and vocation and stuff like that. So um, I've noticed that it's, it, it's very easy for artists, writers, creative people to work on a project, pour themselves into it, spend an hour, hours on it, um, and then put it out into the world, whether it's a piece of art, a book, whatever. And it seems to those people, and sometimes this can be quite a distorted subjective view, it seems to them that actually no one's interested, no one buys, no one wants to know, that it's a busy marketplace and and that then i think particularly for creative people can then be very dispiriting and very discouraging and i i'm i'm increasingly coming to think that that this this is quite a big issue for artists and writers i think how how do we put in a, a proper perspective on the success of our work versus what we're doing who we are our identity the effort we put in all of all of that kind of stuff so this is separate from marketing strategy and, biz and good business strategy this is the kind of it's about the mindset that we should have with our work yeah so i mean earlier we were talking about getting discouraged and um thinking like the work is never good enough i wrote a blog post about this once called why your work never feels good enough and um 
there's a couple of reasons for this. One is the fact that it may not be that good yet, right? Like that's, that's a real, like if, if you're on day one of being a writer, then it's okay to realize it's not that good. I was watching a show recently, um, uh, where this overweight woman who's who'd struggled with obesity her whole life is a TV show. And, um, she, she's a singer. She's a, she's a beautiful voice. And she goes to audition for this uh, show, this, you know, theater, uh, show. And, um, and she's sitting in the waiting room. She's looking around this room of beautiful women and she, and she's, you know, they're all skinny and she's overweight and feels bad about her weight and, um, decides to get up and leave. And, and, and then her brother and her boyfriend are asking her like, Hey, what happened with the audition? She's like, I didn't go because I'm, I'm ashamed, you know, and she's, you know, very overweight, lots of shame issues. And, um, you gotta do this. You gotta do this for this. So they basically make her go. And so she goes back, uh, and, and does the audition and she starts singing like just a few bars of the song. And he goes, okay, thanks. And he just cuts her off and she's just stands up there and she goes, hang on a second. And she looks around. There's all these like very skinny, attractive model, like looking, uh, women who have already auditioned. And she goes, you will not silence me for, for being, you know, for not looking like this, you know, skinny girl over here who probably can't even carry a tune. Uh, you will listen, you know, just cause of the way I look, you, you can't, you know, push me out of here. You, you, like, uh, you need to listen to me. I will not be silenced. And the, and the director goes, okay. He says, Gina, or whatever the, girl, the uh, skinny girl's name is, come over here and sing the song. She comes over and sings the song, and she kills it. And he says, okay, thanks, and, and sends her away. And he goes up to the, the woman, the overweight woman, and he says, honey, I don't care what you look like. You, you're a little bit flat, and you're just not that good. And I could tell that you didn't practice, and that you're a little bit out, you know, out of practice, and you've got some talent here, but you're, you're not good enough for the show. I'm sorry. And she goes home and she tells her brother and her boyfriend about this. And they're like, Oh, we're so sorry. He's, you know, that jerk. And she goes, No, this is good news because I can, I can work on that. I can change that. And, and it's not, it's not like he's not saying I'm not enough. He's saying I'm not good enough and I can get better. I can change that. And, and this gives me hope, right? So, uh, <laughs> like, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting picture of there's sort of two ways to look at this. If I look at my work as something that I can make better, that it isn't just a part of me. Obviously, we understand our writing and our creative work. It's connected to us. But if we understand that that it is not us, and so when somebody criticizes my book, they're not criticizing me, Yeah, I can fix that. I can make it better. I can make the next one even better. And so in the book, Real Artists Don't Starve, I talk about good stubbornness and bad stubbornness. Good stubbornness is being stubborn about the vision but flexible in the details. Bad stubbornness is being stubborn about every little thing and getting hung up on the details. And um, F. Scott Fitzgerald ended up doing this with The Great Gatsby early on in his career. He's very tenacious, stubborn about vision, flexible on details. Later on, he was writing what he believed to be his masterpiece. And obviously, eventually it was, but he got really obsessed with the details to the point that it was sort of a do or die thing. And this is always a dangerous place to be where we go. If people don't like this, I'm done. I don't know what I, what, I, what I'll do. I've staked my whole career on this one move. That is always a bad idea. And what happened with Fitzgerald is the book came out and the critics didn't like it. It did not succeed as his previous books had done. And, um, he was devastated. 
and he went from being uh, one of the highest paid writers of his time to basically quitting writing. He wrote a few other novels afterwards, but he he did that on the side and he became a full time um, uh, 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 scriptwriter, screenwriter uh, in Hollywood, which he considered to be selling out and and the you know bottom of the barrel kind of work for a serious novelist, and, and he. And, and his wife was committed to an insane asylum and he was left to raise his daughter and, and pay for himself and his wife and, and, and their family's expenses. And he died at the age of 40 considering himself a failure. Sadly, um, but interestingly, five years after his death, um, the uh, Great Gatsby started selling again. And by the time of his death, it was going out of print. And um, eventually, like they started sending the books just kind of on happenstance to uh, GIs out uh, um, uh, overseas in the war. And then they started putting it in high schools because it was cheap and small to print. And uh, when that started happening, every year, The Great Gatsby sold more than the previous year. So five years after his death, uh, the thing that in many ways devastated him personally and his career, what he believed to, his ma- to be his masterpiece – Eventually became a run, you know, a big bestseller and continues to sell millions of copies every single year. I think the trick here, Andrew, is when you create something to not look at it as um, the last thing that you're going to create. Uh, my friend Ryan Holiday says, "Don't write your last book; write your next one." And so you yes. need to be thinking of your work as a body of work. And we we don't like doing this. Like as creatives, we like to go. This book is going to be my biggest book yet. It's going to be my best book. It's my magnum opus. What if your magnum opus was actually a portfolio? What if it was a body of work, not one single masterpiece? How would you deal with success and how would you deal with failure? My belief, my hope is that you'd be a little bit less impressed with your own success and a little bit less attached to that identity of I'm a successful writer now uh, and you'd be a little bit less – devastated and disappointed by the failure. Now, obviously, failure is hard and success feels nice, but it would even out those ups and downs because you understand I'm in this for the next 50 years. Yeah. Um, We've been talking quite a bit about or or dipping into your book, Real Artists Don't Starve. And I know that within that book, you've talked about this, this curious image of the starving artist as being such a beguiling idea and 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 you're talking about putting forward a different vision for artists and kind of creating a new renaissance in the way artists think about themselves and the way people perceive artists that they don't have to starve that they can actually do well so can you tell us a little bit about what your vision is for artists who don't starve what does that look like right so as i mentioned earlier i think uh, a thriving artist is what i call it is somebody who doesn't produce art uh they don't they don't make art to make money they make money so that they can make art so this is somebody who has disciplined themselves in the business side of their art which is something that a lot of creatives writers included don't want to do we want to do our work we want it to speak for itself and and yet we don't want to go broke doing it and it doesn't work like that like that uh even the best work doesn't spread on its own it needs help uh, Austin Kleon says, if you want to be found, you have to be findable. And so something that the thriving artist does is they practice in public. They share their work every day in different channels 
in a generous way that brings a little bit of new attention to their work and they show up every single day and obviously they practice but they do some of their practice in public you know if you're a filmmaker maybe you put 30 seconds of your you know latest uh film on Instagram uh if you're a writer uh that means maybe you're sharing um you know bits and pieces of your work and progress on your blog or on Facebook and and part of what you're trying to demonstrate is I'm doing the work and it's getting better. The other thing you're doing is you're trying to not hide, right? You're trying to show up every day and if you don't show up, people are going to miss you. And so thriving artists uh, practice in public and this is, as it turns out, one of the better ways to market your work versus going and writing a book and saying, hey, I wrote a book. Everybody go buy it. If people <laughs> have watched you struggle with that message or that story – for months, if not years, and then finally it comes out into the world, that then they will support you. I have a friend named Natalie Brenner who uh, recently did this uh, with her book. Her, she wrote a memoir uh, about uh, trying to have kids with her husband, not being able to have kids, and eventually adopting a child and then getting pregnant and having two little boys back to back, you know, one naturally and then one adopted. And um, she wrote a book about it called uh, This Undeserved Life. And she had a very small following online, not a ton of uh, readers, but she had a very dedicated tribe of people who had literally seen her walk through this um, journey, you know, and, and seen her struggle and grieve and, you know, all of that. And um, so when her book came out in the first week, uh, she basically sold a copy of that book to every single person on her email list, which is almost a thousand copies yeah. in a week. And this is a brand new writer who has less than a thousand subscribers and everybody supported her. And so that is the power of sharing your story, your art, your work in public where everybody can see it is not everybody will like it. Uh, but you, but the people who do like it, I mean, they'll be all in and they'll support you when that thing comes out. You won't have to convince them. You won't have to do marketing because you've been doing it all along. Yeah. So that's something that thriving artists do. The other thing that they do is they discipline themselves in building a business around their art. And, and typically that means multiple income streams. That means making it a rule to not do most of your work for free, always charging something, uh, because your work has value. And uh, and then doing that a bunch of different ways so that you can build a portfolio that allows you to make enough money so that you can keep doing your work. Okay, um, want to ask a slightly slightly left field yeah. question now. Um, what if it's your partner, your husband, your wife, who is the one who's the artist, who is working, who's who's trying to do all of these things or maybe and it could be both you know both of you what where i'm going with this is how do you support somebody you love who is trying to do this i mean whether you are talking to yourself as the creative or you're talking to somebody else who's the creative i think the answer is the same grace and discipline grace and discipline grace says i love you for who you are um, it's okay that you didn't get up and do your work today. It's okay that, you know, you're struggling right now. Like you are loved. You are enough. This is important for creative people to hear because they get so attached to their work, as we already talked about, that if their work fails, they feel like failures. And the problem is that'll take you out of the game. You know, that'll take you out of the, 
um, body of work that you're supposed to be creating. Um, and so you need grace, but you also need discipline, right? So, uh, when I lost $200,000, uh, in our writing business by, on a gamble that was basically, you know, ego driven, not an actual gamble, but I was like, Hey, if we spend this money, like this thing will happen and we'll make a bunch of money. Worst case scenario is we lose $70,000. Worst case scenario is we lost $200,000 and it happened five days before we got hit with a $50,000 tax bill that we weren't expecting. And, uh, this is two years into my career as a full-time writer. And I go to my wife and I say, we're in trouble because we did have $250,000 sitting in the bank. And, um, you know, I explained to her what happened. I said, I'm so sorry. And she just looked at me and she said, and, and, and I didn't know if she was going to be harsh or I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know. Um, and she said, um, well, uh, you know, we've been doing this for two and a half years now and you, have provided for us the whole time. We've never worried about where money is coming from. And that was true. I, we were both working at the time when we had our son and then the writing business made it possible for her to first quit her job and stay home and raise our newborn, which she wanted to do. And then me to do the same, you know, me, me to quit my job and go all in on the business. And, um, so she said, you've taken care of us this whole way so far and, and I trust you. Uh, and so I know that you'll find a way out of this, but, don't ever do this to us again. <laughs> and like that's grace and discipline, like holding you accountable, uh, but also loving you through the process. I think this is one of the best things that you can do for the writer, the creative in your life is uh, don't shame them, but also don't you know give them too long of a rope. Like if they're serious about this, then hold them to it. You know, when I'm working on a book, my wife goes – how did writing go today? And if I didn't do any writing today, I'm in trouble. And she goes, okay, well, why didn't you do that? That's okay. You know, try again. You know, you'll do it again tomorrow. And so it's kind of this idea of you need to keep moving, but every once in a while when you fall off the horse, we just need to get, it's okay. We'll dust you off and we'll get you right back on. So give them grace, but also encourage discipline and hold them accountable. Yeah. Now, if you had to give just one piece of advice to an aspiring artist, of of any any type of art what what do you think it would be don't stop i mean i was talking to a uh, was speaking at an event recently and a woman asked me what is the difference between artists and particularly writers she asked uh, who have made it who have succeeded and those who have not because i really believe now is the best time to be a writer and uh, if you want to make a living off of your writing there's really no excuse to not do it because you don't have to wait for a publisher. You don't have to wait for an audience. You don't have to wait for mass media. Um, like you can be your own publisher. You can build your own audience and you don't need the media. You can be your own media company. So like what are you waiting for? Um, and, and, and so I think the truth is we see people succeed because we're all running different races. Remember, we see people succeed on different timelines and in different ways of, you know, different magnitude. And so what will happen is you'll, you'll, you'll start down this track and you'll be six months down it and you'll hear some story about how somebody got their first hundred thousand subscribers in two months or they sold their book for six figures to a publisher, you know, <laughs> at month five and you're like, I'm wasting my life. And I remember starting out as a blogger and I went to a conference and I heard somebody say this. They said, um, 
uh, he had a large blog and he was you know doing a lot of public speaking and was writing books. And he said on, on day six of my blog, 6,000 people showed up. And that's how I knew I was called to this. Speaking of calling, Andrew, you know, and I was like, well, this sucks. Like he was picked and I wasn't, <laughs> you know, like the muses – uh, you know, chose him to be their, you know, representative to the world. And what about me? Cause I was six months in at this time. And, uh, it's interesting, right? As a, I was about to give up, I got my first thousand subscribers, right? And, and then, and it grew from there. And, and it took me longer than it took him. Uh, but a few years later, he was reaching out to me saying, how did you get that many subscribers? How do I do that? You know, so it's just different, not better, not worse, just, different and i recently um was looking at all of my failed blogs i had eight blogs before i started coinswriter.com and one was like my myspace page another one was like uh, you know on squarespace and blogger and wordpress.com and they're all still there these horrible blogs that did not make it and the number one reason they failed is is because i quit every single one of them Started a blog in 2006, quit it, quit it 2007. Started three blogs in 2007, quit one in 2007, another one in 2008, another one in 2009. Started another blog in 2008, quit it in 2008. Started a blog in 2009, quit it in 2010. And the major difference, the only major difference that I could find between those failed blogs and the one that succeeded is I didn't quit the last one. And so I, I really do think the best advice I could give you is don't stop keep going your work matters and yes get feedback get input keep getting better but if you quit it's it's for sure over right there's it, it you, uh, failure is 100% guaranteed if you don't quit if you keep going success is possible and i like to say i don't need probable i just need possible yes so if people having listened to this are interested in finding out more about you and more about your work, where do they go? What do they do? You can go to my blog at goinswriter.com, G-O-I-N-S, writer.com. Uh, lots of free tips there for writers. You can download uh, a free ebook when you sign up for my email list on how to grow a large audience. Uh, and it's my story of how I grew 100,000 subscribers in 18 months and the practical things that I did that have helped thousands of other writers um, grow their own audiences. And that's at goinswriter.com. Okay. So Jeff, thanks so much for your time and, and the wisdom that you've given us over this last hour or so. That book that we've been referring to during the podcast is called Real Artists Don't Starve. I think that's correct, isn't it? Yes. Mm -hmm. So thanks very much indeed, then, Jeff. Thank you. And cheers, then. Thank you. Have a good night, Andrew. Thanks very much. All right. Cheers. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bless you. Bye-bye.